them. Your Bible's open to Matthew chapter 18. I trust you're able to get a sheet uh, up for the notes as we go through this very, very important series. And just by way of introduction, I just want to share a story, a sad story with you about a man named Sigmund Freud. You ever hear of him? Sigmund Freud. I came across this short paragraph written by Armand Nicolai, who was a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School when he wrote this several years ago. And Dr. Nikolai explains that Sigmund Freud died at the age of 83, listen to this, a bitter and disillusioned man. Tragically, this physician, Nikolai writes, talking of Freud, one of the most influential thinkers of our time, had little compassion for the common person. Freud wrote these words in 1918, quote, I have found little that is good about human beings on the whole. And Freud continues, In my experience, most of the human beings are, this is his word, trash. No matter whether they publicly subscribe to this or that ethical doctrine or to none at all, end quote. Dr. Nikolai ends with these words, Freud died friendless. And he continues, it is well known that he had broken with each of his own followers. The end, these are his words, Nikolai's words, the end of Freud was bitter. What a story. What a story about someone who postured their life, postured their research, and at least gave the presentation that They cared for people when at the end of the day, when the credits rolled, they hated people. They were bitter at people, seeing nothing good in people, and the very one who publicly postured himself to help people hated them. He died, in Nikolai's wording, a bitter soul. Yet just one more example from history of how someone who is bitter at people, even those who posture themselves to help people, those very people can become bitter. And bitterness is something that will go with you to the grave. You see, when you are bitter, when you are a non-forgiver, when you have worked out hard with mental weights, and have gotten comfortable and skilled in not forgiving people who sin against you, you understand that you're the one that suffers the most, right? You're the one who ultimately suffers. And Proverbs 17.22 even says, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. We are studying here in Matthew chapter 18 the topic of forgiveness. And I believe that this text that we're looking at, verses 21 to the end of the chapter, may very well set you free from your own self-destruction. This is not a sermon series on how you need to be sweet to other Christians. 
how you need to smile and set your chin and just say, well, I'm just surrounded by the idiots, but I'm just going to make it through and be the nice person in the room. No, Matthew 18's taken us far below that. Matthew 18 is out to rescue not the people who've sinned against you. It's ultimately out to rescue you if you're a non-forgiver. The setting for this series is, is uh, Matthew 18, and the whole chapter is happening, as you may recall from our previous message. It's happening in Capernaum at the home of Simon Peter, with the disciples there with him. And Simon Peter, we know from Paul's writing, was married. And, and uh, there's a little child in this home. Well, whose child is that? If, 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 uh, as the Gospels lead us to believe, this is Peter's child. This is Peter's kid. It could be a mini Peter. And Jesus has Peter on his lap for everything that he says in Matthew chapter 18. And he's teaching us that forgiveness is a journey. Now immediately after hearing last week's sermon on forgiveness, and by the way that's available online if you were not here, please get caught up. After hearing even the mention of the topic of forgiveness, there's an objection usually that happens in our thinking at the very least and sometimes in an email after the sermon. And the objection is this, you don't know how far I have to go to forgive and then there's a blank. See that in your notes? I can't give you the answer for your blank. You have to supply that. You need to look at that blank, stare real hard and long and prayerfully and honestly figure out who's going to go in that blank. And don't look for low-hanging fruit. Well, someone didn't use their blinker on Harris Street. You know, let's go further than that. The person's name who goes in that blank is someone who has sinned against you significantly, deeply maybe recently, maybe for a season earlier in your life. You've got to fill in that blank. But listen, you've got to fill in that blank. If you don't fill in that blank at this point in the series, then all we're doing is talking theology. All we're doing is exposition without application and implication. You, the minute you write a name into that blank, or names in that blank, Suddenly, there's an urgency to hear what Jesus is teaching Peter and people like us who want to keep score. The objection is, you don't know how far I have to go to forgive, and then you fill in that blank. And I want to be honest with you. I don't know. I don't know the whole story of whoever is in your blank on your notes right now. So I'm actually going to give you that, that point. I'm going to grant you your objection. You don't know how far... I have to go to forgive so-and-so. I'll give you the point. But my reply is quickly true. But I know how you'll get there. I know how you will get to the point of forgiving someone, no matter whose name is in that blank. You'll get there by taking this journey that our Lord is taking his disciples in general, and Peter in particular on here, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, our journey, as I explained last week, is a journey of five stops. It's not just an issue of someone sinned against you, and, and you're supposed to act as if it, it wasn't significant and it wasn't serious, and you're supposed to look at that person way down there and say, 
okay, I forgive you. We got through that. No. No, there's going to have to be a very in-depth, honest conversation, even a transaction with that person. And it's going to be hard. You know, because you're looking at your blank. So what our Lord is doing with Peter and with us in this passage is we're going through five stops in order to get to the place of forgiveness of whoever's in your blank. Last week, our stop was stop number one on our journey, and it's simply this. Admit your hesitancy. Admit your hesitancy. In other words, before I start worrying about whoever's waiting for me down there at the end of the journey, I need to look at whose heart first. My heart. You say, well, they're the ones that sinned against me. True, but do you understand that I have a heart all by myself, listen, long before they sinned against me, that doesn't like to forgive. And our Lord is leading us to a point of repentance right now before we even get to that point. We'll get there. We'll get there, but we have to admit that we are hesitant to forgive we don't know how sincere that person is. And we fear that. It's a fear of insincerity. We have the fear of vulnerability. If I start forgiving people, I'm going to get soft and I'm going to get hurt again. And there's the fear of change. Man, if I forgive them, I've enjoyed the margin that exists between us through the days or the years, and that's going to have to change. Or I fear exposure. If I forget, forgive them, if I forgive them, I'm going to have to ask their forgiveness as well because I was with them in a sin. And our Lord addresses that with Peter in that first stop. And he, he says, Peter, don't keep score. Don't count to seven sins. He says it's 70 times seven, which means, Peter, stop keeping points. Rather, maintain a posture, a posture to forgive. It's Christ-like. It's cultivated. It's constant. Even when someone hasn't even sinned against you. That was our first stop. But what I want us to do this morning is to look at the second stop on our journey. The first stop is admit your hesitancy. Stop number two in verses 23 to 27. We're going to call this stop, remember your story. Remember your story. You see, it's at this second stop on your journey to forgiveness of whoever's in that blank on your notes. And that forgiveness is going to happen down there. We're over here still. We come to verses 23 to 25. It's a story, I believe, about a Gentile king. I think this is a Gentile ruler because some of the elements in this story are going to be concerning things that a Jewish ruler wouldn't do, nor would be allowed to do. It's a Gentile king, and he has some servants reporting to him with debt. The debt is such, it's, it's, it's large enough that I believe we can reach the conclusion that these servants were actually governors of different regions, and they had to answer to the king for their regions. It's an interesting parable. And you know, when you come to a parable that our Lord told, you have to be real careful as you interpret it. Whether it's a one-verse parable, or like this one, one of the most detailed parables in the Gospels. 
no matter how big it is or how small, you have one important task, and that is to get the point out of the parable. Every parable has one main point. Now, the longer parables give us more details, but those details only serve the one main point. This parable, as long as it is, has one point. I want you to do two things this morning as we come to this stop. First of all, get the point out of the parable. As I said, it's a king with his servants, his governors reporting to him, and it quickly builds to a one-on-one scene, and it's kind of tense. What do you see in this parable? First of all, you're going to see a hopeless accountability. A hopeless accountability. Now, though we started last week in verse 21 and went to verse 22, this will take verse 23 through 25, but I want to start our reading again back at 21. Peter came and said to him, to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Look at this. For this reason, what does that mean in verse 23? Peter, because of you and, and, and what you just revealed about yourself, that you like to keep score, you want to be a God person, but you still want to keep score, I have a story for you. He says, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And I... I suggest to you that these very well could be governors. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he, the slave, did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. You're like, my goodness. This debt is huge. And this man who has his own possessions, his own home, he has his own wife, and they have multiple children, his blue dot on the screen is getting ready to be rubbed completely out. They're all going to be sold and, and split up. Wow, what is this? This is a hopeless accountability. There's a couple of things about this debt that really need to grab you right now. Number one, whoever this guy is, as much trouble as this guy is with this king he's standing in front of, number one, his was a personal debt. It was a personal debt. You have to be impressed with this. I mean, this is one man, this slave, standing before the king. The conversation is going on between this one guy and this almighty king. It's a personal debt. And it's only right for the king to have this interview because everything that his slaves handle, even if I'm correct and these are governors of regions, they handle what doesn't belong to them. It's the king's. He's not talking to anyone else in the room but this man about his problem. 
It's a personal debt. But number two, it's also an incalculable debt. An incalculable debt. It says 10,000 talents, right? You see that? Uh, most, most Bible interpreters understand that this talent is what was known at that time as the attic talent, A-T-T-I-C, the attic talent. It was, it was used to, uh, to, to measure out precious metals and, and had a value accordingly, uh, the, the attic talent. Um, you say, tell me about this. Well, it, Jesus puts the word 10,000 in front of this, in front of the talent. This was uh, one of the largest numeric references Jesus could reach for in the Greek, that, as Matthew records this. 10,000 talents. You say, okay, yeah, that, I still don't know how big that is. All right. Let me put it to you this way. One talent, this man owes 10,000. One talent equals 6,000 denarii. You say, did you, did you mean to clarify things with that word? What's a denarii or denarius? You got one denarius. If you got up tomorrow morning and went to work, at the end of the workday, you would be paid one denarius, and then you went home. That's it. A denarius is one day's wage. A talent, listen, is what you would earn after working for 6,000 days. You feeling it now? This guy, standing in front of this king, owed 10,000 talents that he himself was responsible for. I mean, you, this thing is shutting out the sunlight. It's right in front of you. You can't see anything beyond this debt. You can look to the right, to the left, you can't see the edge. You look to the sky, you can't see the edge of this debt, and you look down and it just disappears into the ground. It's dark, it's foreboding, it's crushing, it's incalculable. Someone ventured to guess that in one lifetime, if you lived a long life back then, you could make maybe four talents, maybe five, maybe three. The Jewish historian Josephus just notes that the Galilee, just Galilee's total annual revenue at the time of this setting amounted to only 200 to 300 talents. That's Galilee. This man, looking in the king's eye, owes 10,000 talents. It's incalculable. Thirdly, it's not only a personal debt, and it's not only an incalculable calculable debt. Number three, it's an unpayable debt. It's an unpayable debt. One scholar has figured this out. I don't know if he's correct or not, but it's graphic. He says, this, th this debt would take an army of 8,600 carriers, each with a 60-pound sack, traveling one yard apart, stretching for five miles. I'm like, how do you know that? But still, it's hopeful in painting in our mind's eye, or before our mind's eye, a scene that is foreboding. It's an unpayable debt. 
How do you know that? Well, look at this. His, he's going to be sold. His wife's going to be sold. All his children are going to be sold. And all his stuff is going to be sold. Now, that's something that only a Gentile uh, in this time, a Gentile ruler, would have done. It was a common Gentile practice, actually. But do you know what that would fetch? If you sold him, the slave, his wife, let's say three kids, and all he had, all together that might bring in between 500 and 2,000 denarii. That's it. Maybe if he had lots of kids, you could get up to a talent. He owed, you feel it now? 10,000 talents. There's one more thing I want to tell you about this debt, though. Number four, it's a growing debt. It's a growing debt. So do you, what do you mean by that? This is what I mean. If nothing changes, it will only increase yet more and more. What is that? I think you'll agree with my wording. That's hopeless accountability. What do you see next, though? I see next desperate agreement. Desperate agreement. Look at verse 26. So, the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before the king, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. What do you mean, desperate agreement? Here's what I mean. As you read verse 26, there's just a simple reply to the king's charges. And the answer, the reply is simply, yes. That's my debt. I know that I'm responsible for it. What do you, what do you not read in verse 26? You don't read any excuses, not even one. No excuse. You don't see any blaming of other people in verse 26. He's not blaming his wife. He's not blaming the other governors or the fellow slaves. He's not even blaming the king. It's a reply to the charges of simply, yes. There's no denial in verse 26. You say, what do you see in verse 26? I see an admission of the debt. He says, yeah, that's, that's the debt. You also see an expectation of justice. This man is white-knuckling his chair because he's getting ready to say goodbye to his wife and his children and all his stuff and even further his own freedom. He expects justice. And he can only do one thing. And that's what you hear in this verse 26. It's the only thing left to do. He pleads for mercy. That's all he has. Or you could say he owned it, he feared it, and he says it. Give me mercy. There's desperate agreement. So... Yeah, 
I'm not expecting verse 27 at this point because what I see in verse 27 is complete acquittal. Complete acquittal. Look at verse 27. It's going to catch us all off guard. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Those of you who like to study the Greek, this is your word, aphiemi. It means to dismiss, to, to, to send it away. I mean, that thing we couldn't see the edges of just a few moments ago that was foreboding and dark and crushing. I couldn't see the top. And the bottom of this dead just burrowed into the ground beneath me. I, I couldn't see around it. couldn't even see the sun. It was there one moment, and when we come into verse 27, the whole thing is gone. Were you expecting that? Commentator William McDonald says, this is an epic display of grace, not justice. I mean, it's there one moment, and it is gone the next moment. Get this, all because and only because of the will of the king. Did you see in verse 27 the king's compassion for this slave? Did you see it? It was the king's compassion for him, the one who had wronged him. Did you also see in verse 27 it was the king who ordered his release? Did you see in verse 27 that it was the king who forgave his debt? Now our assignment here at this point is to get the point of the parable. I believe we've arrived at the point of the parable now. The one point of this parable. You ready for it? Here's the point. It's about an unworthy servant who was forgiven an unpayable debt. That's the point. An unworthy servant, an unworthy person is forgiven an unpayable debt. Now, when Jesus started saying this parable to Peter and to us in verse 23, he used interesting words. For this reason, look at verse 23, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. What do you, what's this talk of the kingdom of heaven? What is this? This is our Lord's way of referring to the time, the span of time, listen, between his first advent and his second advent. His first coming, and we're celebrating that, we call it the incarnation at Christmas time. It didn't happen at Christmas time, but that's when we celebrate it. And a second event, or when he, advent, when he returns in the end times, Jesus is saying, with that, by introducing the parable with that phrase, he's saying, I want to tell you a story that's very common between the two comings of Christ. Between the two comings of Messiah. Guess what? This is our time. We're still in 
this time. It's a time between his first and second advents about, uh, advents about a reality today that people don't want to forgive. This parable is given to Peter who likes to keep track of points instead of having a posture of forgiveness. I mean, you've been in the bleachers with me reading this, right? Uh, we looked that way and this way and we agreed. We can't see the edge of this debt. We couldn't see the top of it. We definitely can't discern. The, this thing is just there. It's defining. It's, it's, it's numbing. And just as we're getting overwhelmed with what this one man owes, this king, then we hear that he's going to be sold, his wife's going to be sold, kids are going to be sold, He's going to go out, his blue dot's going off the screen. And we're overwhelmed by that. <laughs> but we're also, as we sit next to each other in the bleachers, watching this unfold there in the king's court, we're really blown away with verse 27. All that's been forgiven. It's gone. It's gone. I mean, it doesn't even leave a trace. And this, as we watch from the bleachers, this man is on his face before the king. The last words he had uttered was a plea for mercy. And we're just taking this in. And we notice that this servant isn't getting up off the ground. He's not pulling his face out of the dust before the king. And so you get out of the bleachers and you walk down to this man and you help him up and you brush off his robe and all along you're saying to him did you hear what the king just said to you I know you were pleading for mercy it was over and over because we could hear in the balcony we could hear in the bleachers did you hear the whole debt is gone you're not going to die. Your wife's not going to be sold. Your kids are not going to be sold. Your stuff's not going to be sold. He forgave you. And as we brush this man off, this servant, you turn this servant around and you're shocked because you're looking in your eyes. This is your face. You need to put yourself into the parable. The face is yours. And you need to let three questions serve as a reminder to you that you'll never let go. Question number one. Was your accountability hopeless? Suddenly you're not watching from the bleachers. This is your story. This is your story, Peter. This is your story. 2023 was your accountability hopeless the answer to that is yes as a matter of fact can I be honest with you now that we're back in 2023 your accountability was far worse than this guy's 
Remember your debt? Your debt was a personal debt. Remember that? A personal debt to God. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. The conclusion when all has been heard is this. Fear God, keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. And God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Your debt was personal. You know your debt was incalculable? You know that? Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes, Lord, are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. Or Romans 3.23, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. You know, our debt's a lot worse than this guy's debt in the, in, the te- in the passage. You say, why? His problem was a problem with currency. Our problem was a problem with piracy. As image bearers of God, we rebel. We want all the gifts and nothing to do with the giver. It's an incalculable debt. Did you know that our debt was unpayable too? Your debt was unpayable. Exodus 34 verse 7, for example, says, God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. But there's one more thing that was true about your debt. Should nothing had changed, your debt would continue to grow and grow and grow. You know, New Testament's pretty clear that Jesus is building three things during this age that we're talking about between the Advents. There are three things that Jesus is building right now. Number one, Matthew 16, he's building his church, right? Number two, in the upper room discourse in the Gospel of John, we learn that he's building heaven. I go to prepare a place for you. And we like to hear those two promises. He's building his church. He's building a place for us. But there's something else that he's building right now during this age. He's building his wrath. And in the book of Revelation, you're going to read over and over and over again about the wrath, the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of God. You say, this has been a long time. He's still building up. It's a growing debt. Paul will word it this way in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. It's a growing debt. You know, the Puritan Thomas Carlyle was right when he said the deadliest sin is the consciousness of no sin. Or the other Puritan, another one, Joseph Eileen, put it this way. And they, our sin, our sin, our sins are as mighty as they are many. The sands are many, but then they are not great. The mountains are great, but then they are not many. But woe is man. My sins are as many as the sands and as mighty as the mountains. Their weight is greater than their number. Yeah, he's right. And your sin will cost you everything. Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent 
because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. You must never forget, as you see yourself in this story, your hopeless accountability. There's a second question, and there's a mistake in your notes here. It just has A and B. It should be A, B, and C. I apologize. Write this in. The second thing you must remember by way of a question is this. Was your agreement desperate? Was your agreement desperate? And there's only one right answer on this. If you're a Christian, you have to answer this with yes. There was a simple reply to the charges of you as a sinner. It was lobbed against you, and it's like, that's my sin. I own it. I expect justice. And I can only plead for mercy. Or to use the words in Job 42.6, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. Or Psalm 34, verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. You see, when you came face to face by God's grace and He opened your eyes to see your sin and the just wrath of the King, there were no excuses. You're not blaming your past. You're not blaming your personality. You're not blaming the setting you found yourself in. No excuses. You're not even blaming the King. There was no denial. There was only an admission of the debt, an expectation of justice, and a pleading for mercy. Again, if I can borrow David's words from Psalm 51, I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. There's a third question. Was your acquittal complete? Was your acquittal complete? And the answer to this, if you've come to Christ, the answer is yes. And again, William McDonald's quote applies here. This, what we call salvation, is an epic display of grace. Now, in verse 27, the king said, release him and forgive the debt. Your acquittal is complete as well. As a matter of fact, the Bible talks about what happened to your debt. It says, first of all, it's never to be met again, right? It's never to be met again. In Psalm 103, verse 12, write this one down. As far as the what? The east is from the what? The west, or I guess standing where I am, the east is from the west. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. Your sin is never to be met again. But secondly, it's never to be seen again. Remember in Isaiah 38, verse 17, as God addresses his nation, it, we read, It is you, Lord, who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness. For you have cast all my sins, where? Behind your back, Lord. It's never to be seen again. 
Thirdly, it's never to be found again. The sin you were forgiven is never to be found again. In Micah 7, verse 19, it says, God will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And as the hillbilly pastor said in West Virginia once, what God does is he puts a sign there too and says, no fishing. That's right. And your sin, number four, is never to be read again as a charge against you. Again, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I, this is God talking, I will not remember your sins. Now, little nuance here, little footnotes important. Because we have to ask about our debt, our sin debt. Was it paid for? Was it absorbed by someone else? Yeah, that's why we love verses like 2 Corinthians 5, 21, which says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Or as Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, on Christ. It was paid for. I guess I need to ask right now, everyone in the room and everyone online watching, has your debt been forgiven? Or maybe just maybe this morning, God in his kindness to you allowed you to be drawn into a financial debt of a slave in a store. A story told in a dusty living room in Capernaum. You saw that great debt. You marveled at the mercy of that king. And then you realize this is about more than just that king and that servant in the story. Perhaps God in his kindness has opened your eyes to the, to the crushing weight of your sin before a just holy God. And you can do nothing but just own it and say, it's, my, it's me, I'm a sinner. You can do nothing more than expect justice. And your only play is to plead for mercy. If you've never done that, I have some good news. Finish the story now. Because when you own that sin, you say, God, this is I was born a sinner. This is me. And it's worse than I even had an idea about. The worst part of my life is not what I'm suffering. It's what I am. I'm a rebel. But Lord, I own it and I expect justice. I, under, I get that. And I tremble. And all I can do is be merciful to me. Over and over and over again, say that. If you do that. That's God working in your heart, letting you see not just your sin, but the beauty of his Savior and salvation offered to you. And you accept that by faith. Realize that he died on the cross for your debt. 
And your debt is imputed to him when in fact he hadn't done anything in your debt for, uh, to, to accumulate your debt. And his perfect life is credited to you when in fact it was so dark left to yourself. It's a great exchange. Because I'm going to tell you something. Not only will you become a Christian and have new life, but you're going to be able to forgive now like you never dreamed possible. Why? Because you'll never forget your story. You, and I'm pointing back at myself too, we are unworthy people forgiven an unpayable debt. So, I want you to bring this all into the perspective of the wider text of Matthew 18. Starting last week in verses 21 and 22, Jesus took Peter by the hand in his own living room and says, we're going to go on a journey so you'll know how to forgive anyone anything. The first journey is deal with the hesitancy in your heart and see the beauty of a posture of forgiveness. Have you forgiven yet? Have you gone through the transaction of that person in your blank yet? No. No, there's been a, a more important confrontation happening. It's in your own heart. And then the second stop, what you're doing, and you can't skip this one if you're going to forgive them, you are preaching the gospel to yourself again. You're treasuring the story you have a record of here and a picture of this unworthy servant that's been forgiven an unpayable debt. I, I love you enough, and I hope you love me enough. Let's just be honest with each other. This applies to all of us on both sides of this desk. If you ever take your eyes off of this story, if you ever take your eyes off of the cross of Christ and the empty tomb, you'll never be able to forgive others ever, period. Anything even the one in the blank on your notes that's coming up. See, ultimately, it's not all about you. And it's actually not about the person in your blank that we're working towards. It's about the most offended one and the most forgiving one, our Heavenly Father. Brothers and sisters, remember your story. Lord Jesus, this story is one that we needed to relive again. We didn't immediately perhaps recognize that we were reading from our journal and maybe we needed the reminder today because we've stopped rehearsing the beauty of the cross. The magnanimous nature of complete forgiveness that we've experienced. And so, Lord, this is an important stop in this journey. And I pray until we come together on this passage again, Lord willing, next Sunday morning, help us to remember our story against all of our objections on forgiving whoever we wrote in that blank. And Lord, I pray that you will cause us to marvel with how you open our heart 
towards them. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.